and changing things. But now the lesson's going to change. We're going to move on from lesson one, which is who is Jesus. And now Jesus is going to try and teach us something else. Why must we follow him? Why must we chase this king? Why is Jesus so important? Why is he so different than anyone else who has ever lived in history? And we're going to start on that lesson today. And the first person who gets to experience this lesson is Peter. Is Peter, our favorite guy, because he's always the guy that opens his mouth the quickest. And he, get, he says a lot of fantastic stuff, but he's also the one in moments who helps us to see in ourselves where maybe we're a little bit too quick to speak as well. So I want to read this with you. Uh, this is Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. This is what it says. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell, no, not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this pretty well-known passage, this unique passage, we hear three things. We hear a confession from Peter. We see the confusion of Peter. And then we see a cost that has to be paid. So let's talk about the confession. Uh, I was... uh, scrolling through the many videos in my Facebook feed this week. I do it way too often. But it does turn out to be quite helpful for sermons, so I enjoy that. And this week, one of the videos I came across was uh, a clip from a show called Toy Hunters. Now, the more sophisticated people out there would watch Antiques Roadshow, but Andrew watches Toy Hunters. Uh, and what this show is, is people will bring in kind of their own old toys from the 80s, 90s even, which makes me feel quite old, Uh, and they see if any of their toys are really worth anything. And in this particular episode, a gentleman brought in this little figurine, a Star Wars figurine of someone called Boba Fett, Uh, and he got it out for them. And this guy, he said he paid maybe $10, $15 for it, but he didn't really know what it was worth. He was just kind of bringing in all of his old Star Wars toys. And uh, it was so much fun to watch, and it makes me realize the circles I I travel in and, and read about are just far too geeky and nerdy. Because the guy who he's handing to, his jaw drops open, he says, where did you get this? Where did you get this? And they bring in this expert. He looks over the figurine. It turns out that this little Boba Fett was worth $10,000. It was this little figurine that had been put into production, but they'd never released it, and so it was incredibly rare. And it was shows like that, Antiques Roadshow or ones like this, it's so interesting seeing these people who bring things in and they don't know what they've got. And watching the shock on their faces as they realize how valuable whatever it is that they've brought in is. Now, Really, a lot of the story of Jesus in the Gospels are stories about people undervaluing who Jesus is. 
People mistakenly believing that he's not as great as he is, that he's not as important as he is. And this story is no different. If we go back to the start of it, Jesus is walking with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea. This is 27 through 30. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Another say Elijah. Another say one of the prophets. But he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, this is the point that the lights start to go on for Peter. And really for the disciples, they start to realize Jesus is not like everyone else. He's not like one of the prophets. He's not like Elijah. He's not like John the Baptist. He's utterly and entirely unique in all of human history. They're starting to figure it out. They're starting to see what's so valuable about him. Now, Jesus asked this question to them while they're on the way to an area called Caesarea Philippi. That's kind of the, the northern easternmost area of Israel kind of once you get out of the country. And it was known for pagan worship and Caesar worship. So people would have a number of different temples in this area. Uh, there was all kinds of gods being worshipped. Essentially, there was something new to worship on every street corner. And so the disciples would have been thinking, why on earth is Jesus taking us to this place? Because this is not a good place. In the Jewish mindset, it was an unholy place. It was an unclean place. It was a Gentile place. So why is Jesus taking us here? Well, I think Jesus' questions to them help us start to understand why. He is wanting to set up a contrast between all the other gods of the world and all these other religious figures and himself. And so he asks them this question. He says, what do people say about me? Where do I fit in the grand scheme of all these other religious ideas and philosophies? What do people say about me? And they answer, well, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're John the Baptist who had recently been killed, and so they thought he was some kind of John the Baptist figure raised up like him. Other people said Elijah because the Jewish people were awaiting the prophet Elijah to return before the Messiah. But notice no one really was saying what Peter's about to say. There's a lot of different myths and ideas about Jesus back in the day, and there's a lot of myths and ideas about Jesus in our day. And so I wanted to read a couple of ways I think people talk about Jesus in our day. First is the American patriot Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges, who is for family values and owning firearms, and who turns the map from blue to red. Alternatively, there's the left-wing Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint, and the anti-capitalist mascot for the social causes of the day. There is self-help Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems and tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. And then there's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather just have people out in nature listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There is life coach Jesus, a wise and inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center so that you can become a better you. And he's gonna give you a 10 to 12 step process to live your best life. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There is touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians, and he determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There is defense attorney Jesus who gets you off the hook when you're in trouble and you keep him on retainer until you need him again. And then there is post-church Jesus who is down with deconstructing the church of your youth and lets you worship with him from your couch or however you want without the church. There are so many different ideas of Jesus out there. 
even inside what we would call Christendom. Lots of ideas. And a lot, all of those ones that I just mentioned, every single one of them are viewing Jesus as less than he really is. Far, far less than he really is. And so we need to really ask ourselves, what is our confession about the Lord that we serve? Who is the Jesus that we follow? Is he, does he fit in with that list? Is he a life coach? Is he a guru? Or is he the king that saves us? Is he the king that's outside of all the ways we've ever thought about the world around us? Jesus follows up with this question. He says to the disciples as they're telling him, these are all the myths, these are all the things that people say about you. He says, but wait, what do you say about me? Tell me what you think about me. And Peter speaks up, says, you are the Christ. Christ was this title that the Jewish people would have for their Messiah. It means anointed one. It means one sent by God, holy and set apart from everyone else. No one had said this about Jesus because it was a pretty huge thing to say about him. And here we have this guy who only a few months ago, a short time ago, was just a blue-collar fisherman. Never studied with rabbis, never studied in the synagogue, really. And all of a sudden, here he is face-to-face with the man that his entire people had waited for for thousands of years. And he sees it. For the first time, he sees it. This is not a prophet. This is not Elijah. This is not John the Baptist. This is someone far greater than all of those. In Matthew's gospel, this same story, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. You haven't just figured this out by sitting down and thinking it over. My Father in heaven has shown you this, is what Jesus says. God's at work in the life of the disciples. He's helping them see Jesus clearly. Something is happening in their lives that are helping them to see what other people are missing. And so we need to come back this morning. We need to humble our hearts. We need to pray and we say, God, help us see your son the way he should be seen. Let us not be a church that diminishes Jesus by making him into a political figure or a social cause figure or anything else that is less than he is. The God of the universe come to walk amongst us and love us. Do we stand before Jesus today and we say, you're the Christ. You're the one I need. The one I need for the healing of my soul and the the resurrection of my spirit and all the other things that I am so desperately in need of. Jesus finishes here with his disciples by charging them not to say anything, which we've seen him do before, and it's quite a strange thing. There's two reasons why Jesus does this. The first is Jesus is well aware of what's going to happen to him once this starts spreading quickly. There's only one place it's going to go, and that's to the cross. Jesus is not trying to avoid the cross, but what he is trying to do is he is trying to show that he is in control of the timeline, that he will go to the cross when he's ready and not before. So he's just trying to control kind of how the story of his his gospel is getting out. But the second reason, which is more important for us today, is that I think he tells the disciples this because even though they've, they've got the right title, they don't know what it means. And when you don't really know what you're saying and what it means, it's best to wait and learn. And so Jesus wants to address some confusion in Peter's life. He wants to address some confusion. So let's talk about the confusion that Peter is feeling. It's confusion. Now, uh, every fall, uh, I get in very, very bad moods because all the leaves start coming off the tree and I know I'm going to have to clean my yard. And for some reason, Janae and I have always moved into houses that has just one too many trees in the yard. 
And so one year I had this brilliant idea. I was going to buy, I was going to spend some money on a leaf sucker. Instead of a leaf blower, I'm going to get a leaf sucker that basically just vacuums all the leaves up. And in my head, this was such a brilliant idea. I thought this is going to be so easy. I'll just walk out and just suck them all up and we'll all be done. Uh, so I get it, and for the first 30 minutes, I'm so excited about this. I'm telling Janae, look at this. It's so much better than Rick, and he's sucking it up. And then the bag fills up, right? And you've got to pull the bag off. You've got to take that out. And then you realize that if, if you don't rake the leaves fast before you suck them, it, it takes twice as long. And so all of a sudden, this really brilliant idea that I was so sold on, I was so bought in on, I'm starting to hate it a little bit <laughs> because now I'm doing twice as much work. I've got to rake and then suck. So... I was very upset. Now, Peter in this moment, right? Peter is all bought in on Jesus. He is all bought in on this idea. He loves Jesus. He wants to go wherever Jesus goes. He is in, but all of a sudden, Jesus is gonna tell Peter something that upsets him and makes him realize, oh, whoa, this, is not, this is not what I signed up for. This is what happens. He's uh, just confessed Jesus is a Christ. Remember, this is, this is an incredible moment. No one's ever said this before. Peter has seen what no one else has seen, and then Jesus immediately starts to begin to teach them, starting in verse 31, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Jesus' words here, he says, yes, you're right, I am the Christ. Now let me tell you what that means. And as soon as he unpacks what that means, Peter says, stop. You can't, you can't say that. I, that's wrong. And, and what Mark tells us, is he says that he says this plainly because Mark, when he's writing this gospel, he wants you and me to know this wasn't a parable. This wasn't some kind of metaphorical, double-edged sto story. Jesus was saying, this is literally going to happen to me. I will be arrested. I'm being as plain as I can with you. And that's what upsets Peter. If maybe he could have been convinced it was some kind of other story, Peter maybe would have held back. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and our enemies and your oppressors are the ones that are going to do it. And so Peter says, stop. The, this is not what I signed up for. And what he does is he takes Jesus to the side and he rebukes him. And the Greek word for rebuke there is this, it's the same way that Jesus would talk to demons when he would say, come out of him. He would rebuke the demons. And so Peter is very angry. Peter is very upset. He is completely, completely shocked by what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you can't say things like that, Jesus. What a horrible thing to say. Uh, one uh, commentator, Dick Lucas, a minister from London, says, Peter is now going to explain the Bible to Jesus. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, must have been such an embarrassing moment for Peter. But here's, here's what it is, is Peter's idea of a savior and what he needed to be saved from was very, very different from what Jesus' idea of what he needed to be saved from. That's what's happening in this moment. See, Peter, like most Jewish men at the time, they believed Rome was their biggest problem or the oppressor, or whichever latest nation had conquered Israel and brought in false gods and all of this other stuff. And so Peter was saying, no, that's not what a Messiah is, Jesus. A Messiah doesn't do what you just said. Messiahs kill Romans and get rid of Romans and liberate us and set us free to be the people that God called us to be. There is, there is a lot of what Peter is probably thinking that's right. He just doesn't understand it deep enough. He doesn't go deep enough. See, Peter really thinks this is about avoiding the things that cause me pain. 
That's what a savior is. A savior liberates me from the things that trouble me and hurt me and wound me. And, and again, in a sense, he's right. He's just confused about what his biggest problem is. This is what Alistair Begg says about uh, the Messiah. He says, by nature, I don't have a problem with the Messiah as long as it's a Messiah that fits my expectations. But Jesus doesn't fit our expectations. Jesus reorientates our entire thinking about life, about himself, about the reason for our existence, about our continuance on this earth, and about our eternal destiny. Peter's confused. In uh, the story right before this one in Mark 8, in verses 22 through 26, Jesus does something pretty amazing. He heals a blind man. I wanna read that story to you real quick. So in verse 22, it says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything. Now that, that's right before the verses that we started reading today. Verse 27, the verse that comes right after that is they were walking to um, Caesarea Philippi and, and Jesus asked him this question. I think there's a reason why that story goes immediately before this one and why Mark set it up that way. Think about that story with me for a second. Jesus heals a blind man, but what happens is he, he starts doing whatever he does to heal him. He, he spits and he rubs it in his eyes, but the man doesn't see all the way. Now, is Jesus incapable of healing him properly the first time? I mean, we've seen Jesus raise dead people with a word. Do you really think that the problem in this story is that Jesus needed to do more? Jesus is doing it on purpose. He's holding off the full healing because he wants to make a point. He's this man who was blind, he can't see at all, and then he starts to see, but not clearly. And so Jesus has more work to do to help him see all the way. And then immediately after that, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples because he knows they see in part, but not clearly. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I have to do more. You know who I am, but you don't know why I am who I am. So he says, get behind me, Satan. Maybe the most biting rebuke from Jesus to anyone. And why is Jesus saying that to Peter? Why is he being so harsh? Well, because Jesus has heard these words before, hasn't he? If Peter's problem with Jesus is, I don't like this suffering that you're gonna have to go through. You shouldn't say that. Who else told Jesus that he shouldn't have to suffer? Go back to the start of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is led into the wilderness by Satan and Satan tempts him in three ways and every single one of them is about Jesus avoiding suffering and pain. Don't be hungry, Jesus. Make yourself some bread. Don't be afraid that you're gonna be alone, Jesus. Throw yourself off the temple so the angels will come. Don't go to the cross to lay your life down for all these people. Just worship me and I'll give it to you for free. But Jesus says to Satan in that desert, he says, away from me. I'm not taking the cheap route to reconciliation and redemption. Jesus doesn't avoid suffering. And so now in this moment, that same temptation is coming back to Jesus through Peter and Jesus is saying, no, Peter, that's not who I am. That's not why I was born. Jesus actually says that the, when he's teaching them, he says the son of man must suffer. He says must a couple of times. He's not saying this is something that's gonna happen to me and I'm predicting it. He's not saying like, like this is gonna be thrust upon me against my will. When he says must suffer, he's saying this is why I was born. I know exactly where I'm going and it will happen on my terms. This is what I want, Peter. 
And this is what you need, Peter. Because Peter's problem isn't oppressors. It's sin. It's his own heart. Remember the in chapter 7 that we just heard from Pastor Jeff last week? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. There is something deep in all of our souls that is broken that needs to be put right. And Jesus has to suffer to put it right. Our problem is not who's running the country. It's not who's coming up with the laws. It's not economic policies or particular groups who push for social agendas. It isn't irreligious people or atheists or who take God out of schools. It isn't fundamentalists or conservatives or greedy capitalists. It's us. We are the problem. Our broken hearts that need to be put right. And to do that, Jesus has to suffer. Why does Jesus have to suffer? If we had a, a, a lamp up here on stage that cost $100, uh, and let's say Eric broke it, um, I'm making it, Eric the enemy right now, but uh, the only way we can get that lamp back fixed right is either Eric has to pay $100, or I forgive Eric and I absorb the cost of the lamp. Does that make sense? I take it on myself. And in fact, all forgiveness works on that principle when you think about it. Let's say, take a, a less concrete example, right? Let's say someone betrayed you or wounded you or did not love you as you needed to be loved and you feel the pain of that. You can do two things. You can visit the pain back on them in vengeance and in spite or you can forgive them. But if you forgive them, just like the lamp, you're gonna absorb the cost of that. You're gonna absorb in on yourself the pain of it and swallow it because you want to forgive them. You want to release them from the penalty of it. All forgiveness works like that. So if Jesus is gonna forgive our sin, if he's gonna save us, either we pay for it, or God himself will absorb on himself the cost of all sin, the pain of all sin, the burden of all sin, so that it can be wiped clean. That's the only way our relationship with him gets rebuilt. And so Jesus knows, in order for me to be the savior that you want me to be, I have to suffer. I have to go to the cross. And so we finish this part just by thinking a couple of things. First of all, we have to admit that we, we don't see Jesus rightly sometimes. We want him to be a savior that, from things that we don't need to be saved from. We don't accept that Christ sees things in our lives and in the world around us that we need to take uh, attention to. We need to pay attention to. And we've got to surrender to his wisdom and grace. The last thing in this passage we see is a cost, the cost. Mark 8, 34 through 38 says this. He calls to the crowd right after he's rebuked Peter and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. And so if you wanna be my disciple, you're gonna have to suffer too. This is where it gets really, really dicey. And, and you'll notice as you, if you follow along in your journals, every chapter from this, Jesus' following goes down, down, down. Because Jesus starts saying things like this. If I'm gonna suffer, I'm asking you to come follow and suffer with me. 
The Greek word for come after me is the same for follow me. So what Jesus really is saying in this passage is he's saying if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And sometimes it gets translated to come after me because it sounds a bit redundant, but I think it's meant to be that way. Jesus is saying if you want to be with me, if you want to walk with me, then you've got to walk with me. If you want to come and and, and live the life that I want to give you, then you have to live that life. You can't constantly redefine it and change it based on what works for you and what fits for you. Jesus says this phrase that we've all probably heard before, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, um, we know what that means because we know about the cross. We know where Jesus is going. No one would have had any idea that Jesus was going to a cross at this point. All people in this time period know of crosses is that it was a horrific and graphic form of execution for the most vile of people in the Roman Empire. Romans reserved it for people who were the most despicable. Very violent execution. And so here we have Jesus saying, it's it's almost as if Jesus was saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your guillotine and follow me. That would have sounded so strange to them. This is what it means. It's not, it's not about physical death, right? Some of those disciples die, and it's very true that for those of us who follow Jesus, sometimes in certain places in the world, it is a call to die. But more than that, really, what Jesus is asking them to do is to deny themselves and to, to, to take upon themselves the burden of being the people of, of God. Right? The self, the, our, our own heart, is very resistant to the things of God by default, by nature. We don't want to forgive people. We don't want to be merciful to people who've wounded us. We don't want to lay our own lives down and our own comforts down to serve other people. We want to protect and secure, right? Like that's, that's the default human position. It's not a criticism of human beings. It's just, it's the way that we all are, or at least I am. I, I can't help but be that way by default. And so what Jesus is saying is the way that I'm going to lay out for you is very different than the way that you're going to want to go because it's gonna be about self-sacrifice. It's gonna be about laying yourself down, denying yourself. It's not necessarily just about denying myself things. It's about laying down my right to define myself and to uh, have authority over my life. It's about laying down my reliance on my own strength and my own works and my own rituals. And this really upsets us. I think this is maybe one of the most offensive things that Jesus says to us, right? Especially in our culture to say that Jesus is saying, I wanna put the self to death. You don't get to define yourself. It's not about you, right? Don't we live in a culture that's all about finding your truth and finding your true self and defining your own reality? And Jesus says, no, that's, that's the opposite of what I wanna do in your life. I want you to lay yourself down. We have such a hard time with it because we can't imagine that there would be good for us unless we make it for ourselves. This is what St. Augustine said. He said, if you lose your soul, there is a danger of it being destroyed. Therefore, you may not love it since you don't want it to be destroyed. But in not wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. St. Augustine is saying, if we don't let go of ourselves, there's a chance we'll be destroyed. If we don't stop putting ourselves at the center of our love, we, we could lose our very soul. But in laying ourselves down for Christ, to Christ, in Christ, we actually save ourselves. And so we find out that actually that's real love. That's real love that God's given us. 
Surrendering to God will actually grant us more freedom. Surrendering to God will actually real, uh, lead us to real love, to real satisfaction. Jesus is saying, I know what you really crave and you have to trust me. Come to me to find it. Don't try and find it yourself. Give yourself up. Paul said it this way, he said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is good news. Denying yourself and taking up your cross, as, as dramatic as it sounds, is good news for you. Jesus is not trying to scare you into following him. Right? Pay attention to what he's really saying. He said, when he says, what does it profit a man to, lose, to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Jesus is saying, I want you to make the right investment with your life. Don't bet on something that's going to dry out. It's going to go away. Jesus is essentially saying, I, I want so much more for you than you want for yourself. And if we're talking about costs, let's, let's talk about the real cost that gets paid here. Jesus can only say, take up your cross and follow me because that's what he's gonna have to do, right? Jesus is gonna have to go to the cross. A cross that I should go to, that I deserve to hang on, but I don't because Jesus paid that for me. The, the hidden good news in this last part of the passage is that Jesus is paying the cost for us. Isn't that a savior that we all want to give our life to? Someone who would do that for us? A God who would leave the glory of heaven, who didn't need to suffer and say, I will suffer, I must suffer because I love you. And I don't want you to have to carry that. Again, we go to Paul in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is a Greek word, skubala, which most translators can't really write what it really says because it's a very bad word and Christians can't bring themselves to say it. But what Paul is really saying is, compared to Jesus, all the other treasures of this world, beep. I don't want those. Why would I want those when I look at him and I see him? So let me ask you this question this morning. Are you following Jesus because what you get from him or are you following Jesus because what have you, you get in him? Jesus is the reward, the person of Jesus. It's not the things that he can provide for us. It's not the solid, secure economic future. It's not the rich material blessings. It's not the avoidance of pain and healing from pain. It is Christ himself that is our reward as Christians. And so we say we count everything else as loss, as rubbish, because we get him. Jesus will constantly surprise you that he is not who you expect him to be. And he will challenge your agenda and your goals and your fears and he will make you very uncomfortable. But if you trust him, if you trust him, if you follow him, he leads you to a life and a destiny that far surpasses anything you could ever dream of. And you'll find a savior beautiful enough and gracious enough and mighty enough for you to look on and see all the treasures in this world, every blessing I could find outside of him is worth so little compared to the blessing of knowing him. Because you have Christ. You're all in all, your faithful friend, your God. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for these words of scripture that remind us about our confession, how important it is that we see you rightly and love you. Lord, we have so many agendas in our own hearts and our minds, so many things that we think you should be. And there are even times, Lord, where we, like Peter, presume to take you to the side and rebuke you and question you and say, no, what you have laid out for us is not good. And Father, we thank you for your mercy that in those moments you gently correct us and bring us back to yourself. Lord, may we lay down our agendas and our ideas this morning and listen to your words because in you are treasures that far surpass all the riches of this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.